On this edition of the Northeast Newscast, we are sitting down with Jared Sanderson, Executive Director of Senior Housing and Housing Development at Catholic Charities. We will be talking about the updates on the housing project taking place in Indian Mound and what the future plans are in place for the recent grant given to the organization. I'm uh, Jared Sanderson, the Executive Director for Housing Development at Catholic Charities. And as a, a bit of a sidebar, I'm Executive Director of Neighborhoods of Hope um, Community Housing, which is a, a separate 501c3 that's sponsored by Catholic Charities. Wonderful. Well, thank you for being here today. I appreciate it. Thank you. So today we're going to be talking a little bit about the housing plan that you have for the Northeast. So tell us a little bit about your role with Catholic Charities. Uh, where to start? Uh, we've been there 11 and a half years. <laughs> uh, worked in essentially every program that we have. So I started out in foster care, moved to senior care at one point, worked with veterans, was in the, uh, the community education program for a while, worked with pregnant women. And across all those fronts, housing was always an issue for basically every population that I was working with. The nexus of that was the agency decided to not just engage in supportive housing services, but to start developing our own housing stock, which for people outside the agency, that they may not see the difference, but there's a huge difference between providing case management for housing support and then actually building and owning the properties that we're placing people at. The first one we've been involved in for a long time. Uh, we've been providing housing support for decades, but we're not, we don't own those properties. We're just trying to help the people who are living in them, and we don't get a lot of say on when they get kicked out or when they get let in. We don't get a say on what the rents are. Uh, we're just trying to make the situation work and support the person. So we came to the conclusion a few years ago that actually building and owning the housing stock ourselves would give us more control. It's that we have some of the risks now that we didn't have before, but it allows us to be able to control the price points for rent, to be able to control who we say yes and no to. The selfishly, just working in all those programs, I ran into that problem over and over again with clients where on paper they looked like a risk because they had had situations in the past that were still following them, but they were ready. But no one knew that except for the people that were working with them directly. So mm -hmm. traditional housing market just isn't equipped to recognize that difference. Um, and it's not reasonable to expect that mm -hmm. market to have the resources to do it. I mean, so it takes us sometimes six, eight, ten months of working with someone before we really know them. Yeah. <laughs> and on the traditional housing market side, what mechanism does somebody have to vet somebody for six or eight months before they say yes or no? <laughs> it's just Absolutely. not there. Yeah. You talked about switch from just doing the case management to actually saying, hey, we want to own these homes and we want to have a say. We want to be able to have more control over that. Did that start with this donation of a home on the 400 block of Elmwood? Is that where it started? Or kind of tell me about that switch. That was the first functional realization of the idea. Mm -hmm. um, the switch itself was well, probably preceded that. Mm -hmm. And it was really just recognizing that we were we couldn't control that piece. And so, for again, for decades, that was the case. And from my own personal experience, for years, through every program I'd worked in, it just became clear that it, there, this wasn't malice on the traditional housing market side. Most of the landlords we were working with were great people, are great people. It just doesn't make business sense to take risks mm -hmm. um, that they don't have to take. So it was really that. And that donated home gave us a chance to actually test pilot this thing, to get a sense of what it actually costs us to own it, to insure it, and then to manage it, and then to set rent rates um, where we think would be fair and affordable, but would also give us enough revenue to sustain the property. Mm -hmm. um, because that piece isn't any different for us. We still have to maintain the property, and the only way to do it is money. <laughs> and the only yeah. way to get that money is rent money, short of donations. So 
that really was the first opportunity to test it. Um, so we're really grateful to the woman who, who gave us that opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. The original tenant, I believe, was the homeless veteran. Yes. Is he still in, in that home, or has that transitioned to someone else? He is. He's still okay. there, um, he and his two kids. We've learned a lot from that experience. It's certainly, he's grateful for it, but we're grateful for having him, too, mm-hmm. uh, because we've learned a lot of information that we couldn't have learned in theory. What are some of the risks that you were talking about as far as just doing the case management and now you own these homes and you can set the rent? What are some of those things that you have to kind of sift through on a daily basis? Yeah, some of it, the risks that we assume that we didn't used to assume are things that have nothing to do with the actual client or the resident. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of property management 101. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's a catastrophe, if there's an accident, if there's a fire, any of those things we used to not have to be responsible for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, now we're responsible for it. Right. Uh, so we're responsible for insuring and maintaining mm-hmm. the property. And that's a 24-7 responsibility, obviously. If something happens on site that affects the resident's life, um, we need to have a mechanism to respond. And when we're just doing the case management, that's not on us mm-hmm. to deal with. So taking that on, and then we also are now in a position where if we do have a situation where someone's life takes a turn that we can't control, uh, we don't want to be in the business of evicting people. There are situations that could arise where we wouldn't, we would be put in a tough place yeah. uh, if somebody just stopped paying rent. Right. Um, at some point, that's we have to figure out a way to manage that in the same way that anybody else would. So those are added risks that we didn't have before, but we're pretty confident in the services we provide. We've got a really good track record of helping people in those situations. So we've, we've got a pretty good sense that we can do this. I mean, it just makes it easier for us if we control all of it. How did that, did that kind of spark the idea? And then what do your plans look like right now? Once you were like, hey, I want to own these homes, I want to build them, we want to have a control. What kind of plans do you have now for this Northeast community? Yeah, well, our, our, our housing plans are actually broader than just the Northeast. I mean, our catchment area is essentially 27 counties. It's the, basically the whole western side of Missouri. But this, this area is definitely an interest. And so our, I mean, our, our general approach is to serve and to lift. And the, the serve piece is the immediate need. Um, I mean, typically when somebody comes to us, there's something that got them there that needs to be addressed right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the serve piece. But beyond that, there's generally something causing that immediate need. Um, And it's not reasonable to expect somebody to focus on that when that immediate need is there. Mm -hmm. Somebody's hungry or they're cold or they don't know where they're going to sleep. Talking about the future seems crazy. Right. (laughs) Right. Let's just get this addressed right now. But once that's addressed, the lifting piece is is where the housing fits in. Being able to offer somebody a quality, affordable housing opportunity that potentially they could own too. It's giving them a place where they can settle and be content and start focusing on the future now. But if they actually want to buy it from us, um, at a discounted rate, then, I mean, there's no better thing we could offer somebody than an asset that they immediately have equity in and that they potentially can pass on to their children. The broader housing plan is that it's opening up access to individuals who are ready, but on paper may not look like it. And there's a, there are a group of people who aren't ready. Um, they're still dealing with kind of severe needs, and they probably couldn't adhere to the terms of a lease right away. And so we're still trying to help those people, but this isn't for them. Right. Um, this is for those individuals who on paper may not look like a good tenant or good resident, but are ready. The broader housing plan is that. And for the Northeast, uh, there's huge opportunity here. The neighborhood organizations are strong. We couldn't do anything and wouldn't do anything without them because I don't know the area. Right? I don't live here. I work here. And the people who live here know it better than I do. <laughs> I mean, yeah. If we're trying to do anything without their feedback, 
then we're bound to screw it up, and it's not bound to be tailored in a way that's most effective. So the idea that we're, there's a whole group of organizations that are working on this. Our piece specifically is single-family housing. Multifamily housing has its purposes. It can be really helpful, but apartment complexes don't necessarily work for everyone, I and mean, it's certainly harder for families. And so we're really focused on families primarily being able to create front porches and backyards, giving people an opportunity to be able to raise a family in an affordable way. Most of the three bedrooms in Kansas City right now are minimum $900, up to 2000 a month. Yeah. And most of our residents, if you're taking 30% of someone's income as kind of the benchmark for what's affordable, most of our residents can't afford that. Most of our residents, if you're taking that benchmark, really 700 to 750 is as high as they can go. And beyond that, they're setting themselves up for failure. But if you don't have any other option, then you're paying 900 or you're paying 1100 and hoping nothing happens. Right. So our broader housing plan is to start creating an adjacent market that's affordable for all those individuals who are ready, but on paper may not look like it. So you talked about working with the neighborhoods and the people in the community. I know this current project, I believe, is in Indian Mound. Is that correct? It is. So tell us a little bit about maybe the partnerships that you have with the Neighborhood Association. How do you choose where to put these houses and kind of what that partnership looks like? Yeah, so Indian Mound, the the first two was more of a shotgun approach. We were looking for proof of concept and trying to figure out how to get started. Mm -hmm. These two were land bank lots, so they were lots that had been vacant for more than a decade. There had been nothing on them. So the land bank lots are one opportunity for us. Um, Assuming that they're buildable, some of those lots, there's just, there's so much in the ground that we probably can't build there um, without substantial cost. These two specifically, we picked those in part because they were close to the home that was donated to us. Um, So we were kind of creating our own little mini community there. Yeah. Um, They were in a good spot. The neighbors seemed to be interested and Mm -hmm. supportive. And the neighborhood organization, we actually engaged them after we had selected those sites. So the Indian Mound neighborhood organization was supportive and we we, we got a lot of good feedback. I mean, we're going to learn a lot from the first two that are in a construction right now that will inform the next tranche. So we're also working with Lycans Neighborhood, and specifically around the Lycans Park, uh, Lycans Square area, because there's a whole lot of opportunity there. There's a lot of properties that need redeveloped and, and are accessible. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the updates of those homes? Yeah, we, so the last time we spoke, we actually hadn't started yet. We were in the permit process uh, so that's done. Construction has started. The walls are up. The roof should be going up, and they Assuming weather holds, uh, we may be finished with those two by Christmas. It took a while. <laughs> we learned an awful lot about the process and getting clear title and getting permits through to the city. And um, because it's a concrete product, it's relatively new. Not a lot of single-family concrete homes in Kansas City. I think that will become a trend at some point because they're so efficient and because they're essentially indestructible. We see that as a huge benefit to our residents because it keeps their utility costs down. And utility costs, I mean, we learned that with a donated home. Fantastic opportunity for us. The home is older. It's a traditional stick build. The utility rates, they're bare. These should be orders of magnitude cheaper on the utility side. They will be finished by December. The resident side isn't the issue. We have more than enough people. We could build 100 of these tomorrow and still have a need. The resident side isn't the issue. It's more developing the stock, getting the funding and support to continue to grow that stock. Mm-hmm. Do you already have people lined up for these homes? Yes, yes. Okay. As we move forward, uh, we want to continue to broaden um, referral sources. Uh, but for right now, those two are, we do have people lined up. So what does the process look like for choosing who is going to inhabit the homes? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the great things about being a, in a social service network mm-hmm. is that we have ourselves and all of our partners. We've got a really good sense of the programs that exist, who they help, how they help. 
And so primarily the process right now is receiving referrals either from the neighborhood or from partner organizations. We're doing an assessment on our end, but the, the primary assessment's happening with whoever is working with that person or family right now. Um, so they've already got a history with the client. We've got a history with the organization. Um, and if it's one of our own, then we have both. Mm-hmm. Um, so right now the, the vetting is happening through existing programming. What does the process look like as far as design? How do you design these homes with these people in mind in the future? Mm-hmm. And kind of what that looks like. That's where the neighborhood organizations have been really helpful. Um, And then some of the groups working with the neighborhood organizations. Mm -hmm. We have an urban planner that we work with, Christina Hoxie, with the Hoxie Collective. Greg Lombardi with Neighborhood Legal Supports. Urban Farm Guys Mm -hmm. has been really helpful, too. Mm -hmm. They do a lot of community engagement, um, and so just getting people together to give us feedback. Westside Housing, obviously a very strong presence here. So all of those partners and then several others, uh, we just continue to go back and ask for more information on uh, what it is that people want to see in a design, what works best for the community. We want something that fits into the neighborhood. Obviously, have something that's unique and has a different kind of feel is great, but it can't look like it was helicoptered in right. <laughs> and dropped on the neighborhood, right? It has to right. it has to fit with the fabric of the neighborhood. So, yeah, yeah the, the design piece of it, that's not my area of expertise. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm relying on the feedback from the people who live here and the people who do this kind of work to tell us. And so that's one of the reasons that we started with a smaller tranche of homes, Mm -hmm. so that if there are things that we could be doing better, we don't build so many all at once that we don't have a chance to modify. And so the first two really Mm -hmm. will give us an opportunity to recognize what what was good about it, what didn't work so well. I mean, obviously, for the people who we're going to be placing there, they're thrilled to have Mm -hmm. a new home. Yeah. Um, And if the porch isn't raised, or if there's not a basement, or if those things they're okay with, Um, But it will inform what we do next. Mm -hmm. And so each time that we create a new tranche of homes, we've got the information from the last tranche to know what needs to be added, what can be removed, all with the idea of keeping the costs controllable enough that we can offer a a reasonable rent, a rent that's generally 20 to 30% below market rate. So these last couple homes, I think, were built on vacant lots. Yes. Correct. So are you primarily targeting vacant lots, or are you targeting homes that are building from the ground up, or what does that look like? Yeah, so we we chose to focus on new construction initially. So right now, new construction is our primary focus and primarily on vacant lots. Not to say that we wouldn't demo something that needed to be demoed. We do plan to get into rehab at some point. Mm-hmm. Right now, we really are focused on new construction in part because we want to know that we can control every aspect of it. Sure. Um, and create something that we can, we can project what the rents are going to look like, we can project what the expenses are probably going to be, Mm-hmm. Uh, in rehabbing, it, there's a lot more. It can be done in a way that's more efficient, more efficient and primarily cheaper, mm-hmm. um, but there's also more risk, more viability. Um, so being able to put something new in, it gives us a better sense of what, what to expect. Okay. And the vacant lot piece. Obviously, the vacant lots, there's only one option there. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so our primary focus right now is vacant lots, new construction. But yes, uh, when the stock gets big enough and we get the kind of revenues that we think we can generate mm-hmm. to pump back into the program, um, rehab's definitely on the table. Being part of a group of organizations focused on this, there are, there are some organizations that rehab is what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, right. That's another reason that we didn't want to go down that road just yet is because there are people who already know how to do it that are doing it really well. The Northeast has... 
um, several developers that are doing rehab. Um, so where where we can kind of run next to them, that's great. But the, uh, there are some really good groups doing that right now. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the funding for these two homes. Mm-hmm. And then I know you also received a grant as well. And what you plan to do with that? Yeah. So the funding for the first two was a 50-50 blend. Uh, we were able to fundraise half the cost of construction and then we traditionally financed the other half through a, a bank that um, we've partnered with uh, that's very supportive of this. So we essentially met donors halfway on those two, which really works for us and works for them. In the future, we can continue to do that. We've got a couple of different funding mechanisms. That is um, kind of the cleanest way for us to do it, is to just match 50-50, and that way we're not asking for all of it. <laughs> um, right. We've got some skin in the game, too, but it also allows us to, again, control those rents in a way that it's just going to be cheaper for people. And ultimately, that's the balance that we're trying to strike. We want something quality. We want something that has the room and the space that people need, but isn't extravagant to the point where we aren't able to maintain it for reasonable rent rates. The grant that we just got will allow us to do at least two more, possibly three and possibly four, depending on size and cost. And again, with the idea that we're going to be matching some of that with our own money, with our own um, traditional financing. So that's another part of the risk that we historically haven't had to take. We are taking out loans ourselves on these houses, but because we're, we've got the support of the community, um, we don't have to take all the risk. So on the last update that you spoke with Northeast News, I think that you said the the final cost for these homes, each individual home, is estimated between 125000 and 150000 Is that correct? It is. The, the first two were actually cheaper than that. But okay. again, some of the things that we've learned about what we need to add, we're probably going to land um, somewhere in that neighborhood. That's also not assuming we have to do a lot of the infrastructure work. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the vacant lots, the water lines and the sewer lines have been tapped or removed completely. And if we have to go back in and do that work, then that's an additional cost. So we definitely need to work with the city and city council and city officials on figuring out efficient ways to deal with that because that that alone can add 10 to 20% on our costs. can understand why the city did that, um, especially with vacant lots that sat for a long time. Yeah. Uh, but to expecting those to be redeveloped, finding mm-hmm. ways to get some support there and some help there uh, would be extremely helpful for us because it is it's a it's a pretty substantial cost when we have to go back in and either retap or replace water and sewer lines. Mm-hmm. The hard cost construction for the ones we did right now are just a little over a hundred grand. Learning what we learned and probably needing to add a few things, we're probably going to be somewhere in the around the one twenty one twenty five range, okay. up to one fifty if we're adding more bedrooms and more bathrooms. Sure. What impact do you think? really this is going to have on the community and also thinking of what impact that makes on the lives of the people who are taking on these homes. Yeah, I think the the community impact, I mean, it's difficult to quantify. I mean, downtown's obviously growing. At some point, if it continues to grow, it's going to grow into the Northeast. And if the Northeast neighborhoods haven't been supported in a way that they can kind of gatekeep their own communities, um, then potentially they get priced out of their own neighborhood. And so uh, the, the community impact very well could be that we're helping, we're part of an effort that helps people keep what they have here and maintain it, um, and the neighborhood grows without being pushed out. And we've seen that happen in other parts of Kansas City, and it's worth not allowing that to happen here. So from a community standpoint, development standpoint, just allowing the neighborhood organizations and this community to control their own housing stock would be one impact. And the client impact, being able to offer affordable housing to people, I mean, it changes everything. Most of us are living one accident away from bankruptcy or one accident away from a really big problem. 
Um, and what I've experienced in 11 years in Catholic Charities is the people that I work with, they had the accident. I've been fortunate to not have that accident, but it could happen to me tomorrow and I could be on the other end of the table. And that's just the reality that we all live in. Um, so being able to offer people a quality affordable housing rate that's two or $300 cheaper than what they may be paying right now, mm-hmm. um, that frees up so much for them um, and for their children. Food, transportation, education, I mean, the number of things that someone could do with two or $300 extra dollars a month um, and it really does change someone's situation pretty substantially. So on the individual level, just being able to offer that, I think, will, will allow people to really focus on the things that they want to do and to live with less stress and really hone their purpose. Community-wise, there is just so much opportunity here to grow the Northeast without it um, being overgrown and kind of overtaken yeah. uh, by developments that very well could be great developments and well-intended, but end up pushing some people out because people just can't afford it. So what kind of system do you have in place for managing the property, mm-hmm. what that control looks like? So right now we manage the, the one that we have and may manage the two that we have. As that stock gets bigger, we have um, a couple of management companies that we work with and bringing on a management company to help us manage the properties. Um, because that's not our area of expertise. When that stock gets big enough, having management company on board to help us, we want to focus on the residents, providing that service and that lift. That's that's our focus. So yeah, we've got more than enough partners at this point. We have eight senior housing properties, and we have a management company that manages all those already. So we've got a couple of, of options uh, when we hit that point. So we, there's going to be a transition that happens pretty quickly when that stock gets big enough, where we go from managing it to, to handing it off, because that's for us to do this well, we need to not be involved in that part. So one of the last questions that I have is talking big picture. You know, I know that you cover so many counties and you cover such a wide range. What is your goal specifically for the Northeast? Us specifically, I would like to find a place where we can do at least 10 homes in the Northeast as a starter. So in the next year, there's opportunity to do 20, 30, 40 homes a year mm-hmm. and continue to build and rebuild that stock. For us, 10 would be a really good starter. Um, and that would be part of a group effort. If we are able to secure the funding, uh, both our organization and the organizations we're working with, our 10 would be part of 40 or 50 that happened in year one. But that's, for us, continuing to grow that number from 10 to 20 to 30 in this area specifically to help can redevelop that housing stock and to do so at a pace that's reasonable. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's possible to move too quickly and to raise property values up so much that people get priced out. Um, so it has to move at the pace that the community is okay with it moving and the neighborhood's okay with it moving. Um, and I think that number would get us there. Yeah. I think it would allow us to open up housing affordability and accessibility without going so fast um, that we outpace the neighborhood. But have you gotten any kind of pushback from the community or pushback from organizations that say, hey, don't do this? There's always concern um, mm-hmm. for good reason when somebody yeah. comes in and says we want to develop housing. Because there are, um, again, I'm sure that there are instances where somebody's had bad intentions. Most of the time, I don't see it as being bad intentions. But if somebody's coming in and offering a product that's going to be priced at $1,300 a month, um, that may sound great for um, general housing in Kansas City, but it doesn't fit here. So not a lot of pushback, more just questions about where the price point's going to be. Does it fit with what the neighborhood needs, um, which is entirely fair. And again, I certainly don't know everything. So the feedback has to come from here. Uh, And that's true of every neighborhood we work in, that I can only live in one place. And so I don't know. If I go in assuming that I do, then we're bound to screw it up. Um, But listening to the community and then having that back and forth, here's what we can offer. 
here's what works for us, the community saying here's what we need, and then finding the balance in between. I mean, of course, it would be great if we could come in and build something and offer $300 rents, yeah. um, but that's not sustainable for us. Mm -hmm. So what is sustainable up to the margin of what people can actually afford? Mm -hmm. um, and anything over that, if we can't hit their price point, then it's okay. It, we need to figure out ways to hit it or not do it. Mm -hmm. And so the feedback at this point has been more of just making sure that what we're focused on works for the community and is affordable to the community. We get the same kinds of questions, but it doesn't take long to recognize um, with a few conversations that our intention here isn't profiteering, mm -hmm. right? I mean, what we're anything that we generate, we're trying to pump back into the program. I mean, obviously, we need to. It needs to be viable for it to work for us. Mm -hmm. Financially, none of this works if we can't maintain the homes. Mm -hmm. um, so it has to make financial sense. But I've, I'm a firm believer that it, it's possible to have something that's fiscally sustainable and also affordable. Mm -hmm. um, those two things don't have to be pitted against each other like they often are. But I've found it extremely enjoyable to work with um, the neighborhoods here in the Northeast and some of the organizations that are just doing incredible things. And they're not asking for recognition. They're not asking for praise. They just want to get the job done. Um, yeah. And insofar as we can help them, do that, I think it's kind of the perfect marriage. Um, and it's not naive, it's not disillusioned. Mm -hmm. It's a positivity and an optimism for um, what the future could look like and then a happiness with where it is even right now. Mm -hmm. Even though there are some challenges and some struggles, the groups that I've worked with, the neighborhood organizations, the nonprofits that are based here in the Northeast, they're, I mean, they're just hopeful and optimistic. And every time I meet with one of them, I leave feeling better than I did when I got there. And that's, yeah. a, that's a really good impact to have on people. I mean, if right. you can be a light for people... I tend to be pretty upbeat myself when I come to meetings here in the Northeast. I always leave feeling better, feeling like it's, this can be done. And yeah. it's, the challenge isn't as big as we've made it out to be. Mm -hmm. And we do have the resource and the abundance of, of support and motivation to actually do it. Okay. And it's already happening on a number of fronts here. I mean, there are, yeah. Again, there are some really great organizations doing some really great things here, and you can see the impact. Do you pull from a certain source to figure out who's going to get into these homes? Or can people say, hey, I am in need. I need to reach out to this organization to, to let them know that I would like to be in line for one of these homes? How does that work? Yeah, I mean, I think that's we're, we're definitely going to struggle with that um, because, again, the I don't know that we could ever build enough to meet that entire need. Um, for the community, referrals through the neighborhood organizations or through Northeast-based nonprofit agencies I think is the best way. I mean, coming directly to me is fine, um, but if it's somebody that I don't know, I don't have a way to... I'm, I'm basically then in the exact same position as a landlord or a property manager on the Jerusalem housing market side. So you know, that doesn't mean we can't start working with that person right away, but for us, it works better if we've got a partner that knows the person, um, has working with the person, or if it's through our own program, mm -hmm. so that we kind of have a track record and a history um, and we can know that person beyond the paperwork. So, yeah, I think if that house, I mean, in a perfect world, the housing stock gets big enough where we can vet everybody and everybody who's interested. Um, for right now, we are looking at either our own organization's programs or partner organization programs or the neighborhood organizations. Because a lot, I mean, this is something we've learned really quickly is neighborhood organizations know who's living in their community, know who is paying too much for rent, is capable of doing this but just needs a cheaper house. Mm -hmm. um, so right now, referrals through those entities are best. Yeah. Um, but we, I mean, we'll have a conversation with anybody. Sure. Um, we just okay. can't promise everybody a house. Right. <laughs> okay, so for people who are interested in learning more about the progress of mm -hmm. these homes or what's going on, how can they get more information from you? Definitely email um, or phone, either one of those. Happy to have a conversation. But yeah, I think anybody who's interested in, in learning more or feels like they could be helpful, we have a lot of needs. Uh, being able to vet properties, parcels, um, to make sure that they're buildable, to make sure that we understand the history, 
Um, that's a, a huge need for us. Obviously, the funding side of this, the, we can do more the more money we get. And it's not just about money, but that's a big piece of it. Being able to provide mentorship, peer mentoring, or um, just general homeownership training. I mean, those are kinds of things that are going to be needed, too. Mm-hmm. But yeah, right now, I mean, I'm happy to talk with anybody that, that reaches out. Um, and we can have a conversation and see if there's an interest and if something fits. My email address is jsanderson, J-S-A-N-D-E-R-S-O-N, at ccharities.com. Um, Neighborhoods of Hope, so the housing-specific piece of Catholic Charities, the development side, does have its own landing page website. So, yeah, there's there's a number of different ways to get there, and those I'm sure those access points will grow as the effort continues to grow. Uh, I think this is going to be one of those deals where when it takes off, it really takes off. Yeah. Uh, because just having the first two built, um, we're getting a lot of interest mm-hmm. um, now that there's a proof of concept and there's actually something to see. Right. Uh, because we've been talking about it for a while, uh, and it, t- it takes a while to get it off the ground. Uh, I was told three years ago that anything you're working on today will pay off in five years in this business. And I scoffed at that and said, no, we're going to make it happen faster than that. And we will, but we didn't this time. Yeah. <laughs> so, How long um, did these houses take? I mean, from concept to yeah, completion, like it's what? Every bit of two and a half years. Okay. Uh, now it won't take us that long from here on out because we understand the process right. at this point. But um, identifying the, the parcel, getting title cleared, getting funding to build new, uh, getting permits approved, all of that was about a two-and-a-half-year process for mm-hmm. these two lots. Okay. Um, and the goal is to cut that down to three to six months once we start churning um, and really get good at this. Yeah. And I think we've got the people in place to do that now. Do you ever work with any volunteers for this project? Yeah, I mean, a lot of what we're doing right now is contracted vendors, Mm -hmm. uh, but we, volunteers who have a specific expertise in development, um, and there's always the the legwork on site, um, Mm -hmm. clearing the site, that kind of stuff. And we can definitely use that too. Uh, The finished product, I'm sure painting and, I mean, all those things would be helpful. Uh, but on the development side, the expertise to be able to walk into a neighborhood and look at vacant lots and see what they could be, mm-hmm. um, that is, that's always helpful, too, uh, because yeah. there are always things that, that are there that may not be seen um, by the layperson, layperson being me. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, anybody who's, who's willing to kind of walk that um, process with us and point out some things. Um, that we may be missing would be really helpful too. Single family um, was the first focus in part because that seems to be the thing there's a dearth of. Mm-hmm. Um, there seems to be a, a lack of single family housing, especially in neighborhoods um, that are less affluent than Plaza um, yeah. and everything around in and around there. So single family was our initial focus because it just seemed like such a need. Um, we do have some transitional housing projects that we're working on, primarily right now that are tied to workforce programs um, or employment services programs. That's something we want to continue to focus on, too. There's a huge need for transitional housing, mm-hmm. and especially for individuals who are engaged in employment training programs. Okay. Um, so there are some great organizations doing this in Kansas City right now, but when someone is in that training program, whether it's pet grooming or culinary arts or sewing or truck driving, um, when they're in the program, Quite often, it's really difficult for them to get a salary until they graduate. During that stretch, however long it takes, if it's eight weeks, if it's 12 weeks, if it's six months to finish that program, they don't have a place to live, um, and so they're living in cars and couch surfing, and it makes finishing the program that much harder. Um, So being able to pair up with those organizations to create some kind of transitional housing structure. I mean, in the perfect world, we're doing that, and then when someone graduates, then they move into a single-family home that we've built, Mm -hmm. and it's just a smooth transition. We've had senior housing properties here in Kansas City and then throughout the 
the diocesan area for a while. And so we still manage and operate those 440 units. I mean, they're a huge benefit for the people who are able to live there. And we're continuing to build more of those. Um, and so we've got a similar project going up in St. Joseph just got funded. Um, so it's 38 units for um, 62 and older, uh, low income 62 and older. So yeah, I mean, there are multiple prongs to this and because there's no one solution multiple solutions. Um, for the Northeast, single family is where our, our primary focus is, but there's no reason why we can't expand that to think a transitional um, housing structure, co-housing structure would make sense mm-hmm. at some point too um, down the road. And that was Jared Sanderson, Executive Director of Senior Housing and Housing Development at Catholic Charities. For more information on the organization, visit catholiccharities-kcsj.org. Mm-hmm.